Hello and welcome to another very exciting episode of the AABIP podcast. This is Udit Chadha from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. Today, I am very fortunate to have with me Dr. Atul Mehta from Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Mehta, thank you so much for your time. It's my honor, Udit. It's my honor. And with Dr. Mehta today, we're going to discuss tool or toy. Basically, I'm going to ask him questions to seek his opinion on the current status and the future of certain things that we do in interventional pulmonology. Dr. Mehta, it's a broad question, but do you have any relevant conflicts of interest? Uh, Udit, no, I have no conflict of interest. I like to say that none of my biases are financially supported by anyone. All, my, all the views I give is my own. Um, and Cleveland Clinic has nothing to do with that as well. So short answer is no. All right, thank you. So let's dive into the podcast answer. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of discussion about cryobiopsies for ILD. We have a lot of discussion about uh, cryo mini probe, the 1.1 millimeter probe for peripheral lung nodules. But I want to ask you something different. What are your thoughts on cryobiopsy for lung cancer rejection surveillance? Uh, you mean lung transplant rejection, correct? Yes, lung transplant, sorry. Yes, yeah, no problem. Um, Udit, uh, I think uh, this is a very, very interesting question. And I'm glad that you are asking uh, this as uh, the first question because this will bring out uh, many of my philosophical approach to the subspecialty of interventional pulmonology. Um, again, in all fairness to you, I do not like to answer your question with a question, but in this particular situation, I may have to do that. And the reason is, so let me ask you a question. What is the role of surveillance bronchoscopy in lung transplantation? Okay. My understanding of it is to see for incidental findings, look at the anastomosis and perform biopsies to look for rejection. Very good, excellent. Well, the thing is this, even to date, 40 years of experience with lung transplantation, there is no convincing data that surveillance bronchoscopy improves the survival of lung transplant patient, neither it reduces the chances of chronic rejection. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think that's a very fundamental fact that we need to realize. The, the last article I read about surveillance bronchoscopy, I think it was from Galveston, Texas, or something like that. It was more than 10 years ago. It was a small study, and looking at clinical bronchoscopy versus surveillance bronchoscopy. And again, the fault is mine as well. I have been doing transplant for about 30 years plus, um, having taken care of close to 2,000 patients, and I have not been able to do this study for a variety of reasons. But what we need to do is randomize patients between clinical bronchoscopy and surveillance bronchoscopy, and then ask ourselves a question, whether the surveillance bronchoscopy is needed or not. Okay, so that's, that is what I want interventional pulmonologists to know that we are putting a cart before the horse. We even don't have a good data that surveillance bronchoscopy changes anything. And now we are talking about 1.1 millimeter versus 1.7 millimeter size probe in surveillance bronchoscopy, in surveillance transbronchial biopsy. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So I'm glad, I'm sure that you got my perspective on this thing that I want all of us to be a pulmonologist before we become a bronchoscopist and become a bronchoscopist before we become an interventional pulmonologist. So if I yes. had to paraphrase what you're saying, you're saying that we have not defined the problem yet. So in the current status, cryobiopsy for lung transplant rejection is a toy, not a tool. Exactly. Uh, absolutely. I think you took the words out of my mouth. Um, the thing is, it is not the question we should do a cryobiopsy for lung transplantation or not. There is no argument. Cryobiopsy provides larger piece of tissue. Fair. Uh, that's, that's given. Cryobiopsy provides a larger piece of tissue. How much difference does it make in overall outcome of the patient? That's the major question. And if it doesn't make any difference, then there is no reason to consider cryobiopsy. And it is a toy. All right, Again, perfect. as I mentioned to you briefly that I have been doing this biopsies for 30 years in lung transplantations. I have seen some articles, some from Israel related to cryobiopsy in a lung transplant patient, single lung transplantation. It is so difficult to do 10 biopsies on a single lung transplant patient in terms of uh, surveillance bronchoscopy if they develop bleeding. It is very, very difficult to manage. Just realize it. You have a scope through the anastomotic site. Patient has got only one good lung and that lung bleeds. If this patient is going to end up on the ventilator. You may require bronchial artery embolization. Um, you know, you don't want to do that on a patient who is on calcineurin drugs. So my short answer to your question is, in my opinion, your technique of cryobiopsy in lung transplant patient is just a toy. It is just like a hammer and a nail theory that if you have a hammer, the whole world is a nail for you. At the Cleveland Clinic, we do not do cryobiopsy at all. And I think it is too dangerous to do cryobiopsy in a lung transplant patients, especially in patients who have got single lung transplantation. Personal views. Thank you. So talking about hammer and nail, that's a good segue into our next topic, which is a lot of our discussion today is on our ability to reach small nodules. The data isn't there yet, but I think we'll definitely improve upon our prior yields with the newer technology that we have. However, does it concern you that now that we have the toys, we are targeting these five to six millimeter range nodules, many of them which just should be followed. Many of them will have complications. Many of the biopsies will be unsuccessful but we are biopsying them because we have the hammer. Yeah, again, this is, this is uh, you will have to answer this question five years from now. I know I have followed you and I have looked at some of the things you have presented at the national and international meetings. Um, as you know that, um, first of all, uh, let me just say that if this is a ground glass nodule, I would definitely not, I would not follow that particular nodule. I mean, I would not biopsy that particular nodule. I would just follow that nodule because it may take five, seven, 10 years before that nodule may become, you know, a problem for that particular patient. So mm -hmm. if it is a solid nodule, once again, uh, there is a beautiful guidelines by Fleischner Society 
And this would be not all comers, you know, patients who have got very low risk or what you call it as pre-test probability is very low. I think we need to apply all that information we have before we consider uh, going after this sub-centimeter nodules. And at this stage, I would like to refer you to a very nice article. I think it was in Cancer um, in 2014. And what they said, they had followed close, they had done video-assisted thoracoscopic resection of 350 nodules. And they were right in 93% of the cases. They were absolutely right um, in uh, removing these lesions without any biopsy. So what I'm trying to say that in proper clinical setting, you do not need to biopsy this nodules. Not all nodules need to be biopsy. Mm -hmm. And again, what I think that what is happening right now, the creation of interventional pulmonology is separating ourselves from the field of pulmonary medicine. We are all more focused on the toys uh, and, and uh, you know, um, what you call uh, your cone beam CT and augmented fluoroscopy and robotic bronchoscopy. And somebody asks you, oh, there is a nodule. You know, the first reaction is, yes, I can biopsy that. Mm -hmm. um, we have um, IP service and we see the patient for the first time many a times in the Bronx suite. At that time, it is, there is no time to uh, send the patient back home to say that, oh, we are just going to follow you. So I think this super specialization is leading us to biopsy these nodules. However, I think many of these nodules do not need to be biopsied at all, personal view. Mm -hmm. So basically the industry and the toys have newer things coming up and our research has not been able to keep up. Absolutely. The thing is this, you know, uh, again, I call this thing as bronchosophy, meaning that philosophy of bronchoscopy uh, in my mind, there are three different type of physicians. You know, one is that who are industry champion, who are a procedure champion, and there are small group of patients or physicians who are patients champions. Okay, so we have a tool and we want to utilize it for everything. You know, EBUS, for an example, you want to use it for peripheral lesions, you want to use it for the cysts, you want to use it for pulmonary embolism, and so on and so forth. So we need to be very careful where we apply this particular technology. I do not want us to be like sleep specialists. You know, every person snores, get a sleep study. We do not want to do that. I hope All right, I on those lines, that. let's uh, take your opinion on the future. So let's fast forward maybe five to seven years. Where do you think we will be with therapeutics for peripheral lung uh, nodules that are proven to be malignant? And any hopes of us matching SPRT with our uh, yeah. developing therapeutic technologies? Yeah, I, I think that's a very good question. And uh, that, is, that is a question for all of us um, uh, to face so that we can uh, make progress in proper direction and invest our efforts in that particular direction. Uh, as someone has said, the best profit of the future is the past. Um, to be honest with you, it was year 2016. Uh, it was World Congress for Bronchology in Florence. 
And I think I gave, I gave the first talk on treatment of or bronchoscopic treatment on um, of the peripheral nodules um, in a way what you are talking about that endobronchial management of these nodules. We diagnose them, we stage them and we treat them in one setting. And I gave that talk in 2016. Today it is 2022 and we are preparing for uh, the next World Congress. And to be honest with you, between those last six years, I haven't seen much progress uh, between 2016 and 2022. We are saying the same things what we said in 2016. It sounds interesting, but let me just give you a simple example. Mm, simple example is that, you know, all innovations are history forgotten. Um, there is, uh, there was some interest now in uh, uh, photodynamic therapy as well. Now, photody photodynamic therapy came and went away almost 30 years ago. I had a death treating a peripheral type of lesion with, uh, with uh, what you call photodynamic therapy. And I think that probably incident was one of the things that would completely, it shut down the photodynamic therapy. Now we are going back into that again. If I talk about microwave therapy, what I think you are referring to is my concern is that if there are one or two major bleeds like what I had, I think that would be very catastrophic. And the reason I'm a I'm little bit concerned about it because most of the data which has been retrieved uh, for treatment of nodule is based on liver cancers. And you know, patients with liver cancer can afford bleeding within the lesion. I doubt that the patients with lung cancer can afford bleeding within a lung cavity. So um, I would say that probably uh, in next five years, we would still be at the level where we are. Besides, um, thoracic surgery is also making strides. In other words, video assisted thoracoscopic surgery as well as robotic lobectomies are becoming so simple. And um, uh, what I mean to say that are not, that not in non-invasive and patients go home in two or three days after the surgery is done, I think that may be competing with your plans of treating the patients uh, endoscopically because there is always a risk of bleeding. Uh, so that is what my uh, and looking into the crystal ball, I would say we will still be there where we are today, what we were six years ago. Okay, so five to seven years may not be uh, an right. adequate time frame. We still have a lot of work to do. And yes. at the same time, thoracic surgery and radiation oncology is also making strides. So our work doesn't get any easier. Right. All right. So let's uh, dive into a slightly different direction now. So I wanted to ask you your opinion about BLVR, bronchoscopic lung volume reduction using valves for homogeneous emphysema. Now, should we completely separate this group from the heterogeneous group and come up with stricter criteria for candidacy for these patients? Um, uh, yes, uh, uh, answer, so short answer is yes. There are two recent publications related to this. So one was in respiration, one is in chest related to the management of homogeneous emphysema. And uh, definitely this group of people requires stricter criteria. 
And what I mean by that is, is that all endobronchial volume reduction uh, patients should be discussed in a multidisciplinary fashion. Uh, this is not a simple decision made by a bronchoscopist or an interventional pulmonologist. Uh, what I'm talking about is, is, is that a thoracic surgeon, a pulmonologist, a physiologist, um, you know, radiologist, all of us should sit down together and select the cases properly. Uh, you should not be taking any chances and whatever means of finding out that whether you have collateral ventilations or not, I think we should look into that. Um, and second thing, I want you to realize as well that um, one can also consider hybrid procedures. What I mean by that is you may do lung volume reduction on one side and a valve placement on the opposite side. That could also be considered having a team approach or multidisciplinary approach. I'm not against treating homogenous disease. I'm in favor of that if the patient is properly selected with the stricter criteria. Um, and again, as you know, I was mentioning to you about thoracic surgery. Now the lung volume reduction surgery from the days of NET trial, that was many, many years ago where patients had open thoracotomies, now we are doing lung volume reduction surgery through video assisted thoracoscopic approach in a stepwise fashion, one side first and then the opposite side three to four months later that also reduces morbidity on the patient. So answer to your question is yes, more stringent criteria, multidisciplinary approach, consider a hybrid approach and then proceed for homogenous disease with the valve placement. I think there is some future to that and that may even prevent or postpone lung transplantation in some of these patients. And when you say stricter and more stringent criteria, do you, other than a higher residual volume, are you referring to anything else? Uh, yes, we, we need uh, definitely more than 225% residual volume, uh, very high tidal, I'm sorry, total lung capacity, no evidence of um, what you call uh, uh, collateral ventilation, and everything else has been tried on these patients, including pulmonary rehabilitation mm -hmm. um, and management of all other medical conditions. If I may add also, I think we should also have a slightly different patient expectation set up, right? And in, in these cases. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, these, these patients basically would be told that if this does not work, well, the next option would be lung transplantation. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it does work. Uh, again, uh, you know, expectations, as you know, that in about two and a half to three years, I have seen most of my patients going back to their baseline uh, uh, quality of life. So the benefit lasts for about three years. That is what I told or tell all my patients. Mm -hmm. And maybe that would be a little bit less for the patients with homogenous disease. But there is some hope for these patients. Mm -hmm. So one more question. And um, this is probably a little more philosophical than medical. So some of us believe EDAC to be strictly an epiphenomena and not a primary airway pathology, while others continue to offer tracheobronchopexy for severe cases. It seems like this has been a discussion for almost two decades now. So my question to you is, why are we still so divided about the pathophysiology of this condition? Is there some truth in the middle? Can some patients benefit from airway fixation? 
Um, I think that's a very good question. And to be honest with you, I don't have a complete answer for that, but this, I'll give you my views on that. I, uh, we have discussed my views before as well. Um, what I believe, what I feel that excessive dynamic airway collapse is of two types. One is primary and another one is secondary, of course. The secondary, what I mean by that, that is related to the small airway disease where there is, um, you know, patient has got either COPD or constrictive bronchiolitis or, um, you know, respiratory bronchiolitis of some sort that is increasing transpleural pressures, uh, transpulmonic pressures and causing collapse of the airways. In these patients doing any of the endobronchial maneuvers is not going to work because you need to reduce transpulmonic pressures. And uh, we talked about one of my studies on lung transplant patients that they had excessive dynamic collapse by all of our criterias which resolved after lung transplantation, proving that these patients have small airway disease that is causing excessive dynamic collapse. So that's a different group of patients. And in these patients, you do tracheopaxy and all those things, it is definitely not going to work because the cause is something else. Now, let's talk about a very small group of patients. And I think there are patients in the literature reported they had primary excessive dynamic airway collapse they had no smoking history. Um, I think the subgroup of these patients have um, um, obesity. And I also believe that overweight is a factor associated with excessive dynamic airway collapse. So I would make every effort to treat obesity in this particular patients. Uh, Dr. Miyazawa, many years ago, I'm talking about 15, 20 some years ago, while he was talking about patients with this condition, he talked about choke point. And the reason uh, that I'm concerned about that if you do any endobronchial maneuver, what you end up doing is, you know, uh, pushing the choke point further down distally or proximally, and patient still has got excessive dynamic airway collapse. So in this group of patients, I favor pneumatic stenting uh, when my friend uh, Tim Murgu uh, talks a lot about it uh, is putting these patients on BiPAP or CPAP or AutoPAP and do pneumatic stenting on them. Uh -huh. um, and one other group which I think may be benefited by endobronchial procedures of any kind, and I have done some in patients with relapsing polychondritis where the dynamic collapse is, is mainly segmental um, or it is not diffused and those patients do better with either stent placement or T-tube placement or the placement um, uh, of uh, tracheostomies. So that is the way I approach the patients with, um, uh, with excessive dynamic airway collapse. I do not think that tracheoplexy, as you know, that there have been uh, from uh, B, uh, what you call BI, um, uh, from Boston group, they have done some cases, but as I understand, there is no long-term follow-up. And within a year or two, these patients may require removal of the Marlex, which has been placed behind the, tra behind the trachea to support excessive dynamic collapse. In France, they are doing some laser procedures for this thing, but I am not aware of any long-term follow-up on these patients. So uh, I think until we understand more about excessive dynamic collapse,
I would try to be more conservative than aggressive in the management of this condition. Awesome. Thank you. So at the moment, Trichiopexy is a toy, not a tool um, right. for EDAC. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Mehta. Your views are amongst the most valued and respected in our community. And I'm sure our listeners would love to hear this podcast. Thanks again okay. for your time, sir. Thank you very much. And my today's message is, you know, that be a pulmonologist before you become a bronchoscopist and be a bronchoscopist before you become an interventional pulmonologist. You do not want to be like gastroenterologist that the first thing you do is endoscopy before you answer any questions. Okay. That is, that is what I would say. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Mehta.